and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Chuck Thompson back to the program today. Chuck has appeared on Book Talk for his three previous titles, Smile When You Are Lying, Confessions of a Rogue Travel Writer, To Hell Holes and Back, Bribes, Lies, and the Art of Extreme Tourism, and Better Off Without Them, A Northern Manifesto for Southern Secession. Today, we have the first of a two-part interview about his most recent book, The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Well, Chuck, in the social sciences, we have to do something called operationalizing definitions. So how are you defining status? Glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty tough to define. I mean, there's a lot of amorphous terms around it, but I employ the terms luxury, prestige, status, elite, more or less interchangeably while kind of acknowledging their shaded differences, right? So luxury tends to apply to a durable good or service. You know, that's anything from $120 massage to a Audi R8. Prestige tends to mean like a standing or the admiration a person or product enjoys in the eyes of others, right? Unlike luxury, prestige isn't purchased. It's transmitted through reputation. Status kind of similarly, but more refers to social or professional understanding of a person in relation to other things. You know, in the political world, right, Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, enjoys a higher degree of status than Jake Ashby, who's a member of the New York State Assembly. So the reason I kind of said, oh, I'm glad you asked, I kind of equivocated a little bit at the start is, as I talk about in the introduction of this book, terms of status and luxury and prestige, elite, privilege, they have very mushy definitions and not everybody's really clear on what they are. Even the people who market luxury or talk about status, they have a really hard time defining it as well. And that's one of the things that I kind of kicked the book off with. And how would you identify your own status? Well, as I like to say, writers have a little bit of status uh, in the community, literary world, or you get a book published and it, it gets you on. I invited to do interviews like this one. That's great. You know, they also say of writers, uh, he died penniless for a good reason, <laughs> right? And this also kind of is another point that I like to make in the book, which decouples the idea of status necessarily from wealth. The two can go together, but they don't necessarily have to. My status is probably the same as everyone's, which again is another point of this book, which is that the poobahs of you know luxury marketing are now telling us that that's exactly what's possible, is that everyone's a VIP now. Everyone has status. And while that sounds like a contradiction, like an oxymoron, right? Status is for everyone makes no sense. The idea of status or elitism is meant to separate the prized from the insignificant. In fact, part of what I'm calling the status revolution is a thorough repudiation of that idea. I remember there was a, a movie in the last year or two called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, and it's about a cleaning woman who comes into some money, and she wants, I believe, a Chanel gown and has a, a difficult time getting it because of their snobbery at the uh, the house of Chanel. And it ends up one of the accountants at the firm is trying to get Chanel to go more mass market with their brands in order to attract more money because it's a losing proposition catering only to the wealthy at that point. I don't know the film. I would have personally a hard time now uh, imagining that that's true, that anybody couldn't buy a Chanel gown. 
And that's a big problem for the luxury marketing industry, but it's also what they've turned into a big opportunity. At the consolidation of luxury brands over the last quarter century has really changed the luxury industry considerably. What were once these small family-run entities, you know, handcrafted rare goods are have now become swallowed up by these large corporations, right? LVMH, which is what Louis Vuitton, Moy, Hennessy, now owns 75 brands. They own Bulgari, they own Tiffany. Richmond owns Cartier, Montblanc, Ralph Lauren, and so forth. There's four or five of these major luxury brands that own all of these luxury corporations that own all of these luxury brands. So one of the big conundrums facing contemporary status marketers is reconciling the fact that while a product's prestige is often based on scarcity and cost, in order to attain the scale necessary to remain globally competitive, a consolidated brand now has to attract a mass following, right? But the concepts of scarcity and mass production are fundamentally at odds. How's BMW supposed to retain its reputation for elitism when its cars are routinely driven by you know, school teachers and Applebee's managers? Does BMW ownership elevate the status of the working class or does their allegiance to the product devalue the brand? So to address this problem, right? These luxury marketers are now promoting this idea that again, on the surface, sounds like an oxymoron, which is that status is for everyone. Prestige is proletariat. Anyone can buy a Chanel dress. In fact, if you can't afford a Chanel dress, guess what? We've got outlet malls and discount stores and online deals for you. Or perfume. Yeah. Or perfume. Or there's a, there's a, an anecdote in the book about a Louis Vuitton bag that a you know a very posh uh, wealthy woman in Shanghai suddenly starts seeing all of the peasants from the, the outside from the villages of of uh, China showing up in Shanghai with these Louis Vuitton bags and she's quite unhappy about this because suddenly the the elite the, the the privileged part of the game is gone and the reason for that is you can't be part of a, a, a right? how are you supposed to raise profits by 15% annually while maintaining your reputation for scarcity and high cost? And the answer is you can't. And so once you become part of this conglomerated global force, that's the name of the game is, is increased sales. And so that's what's happened. And that's what's happening in the, in the luxury marketing industry. And again, they're, their response uh, across the board response to this problem is to just shift the rules of the game and say that status isn't for the elect, for the select few, for the lucky ones. It's for everyone. Well, and with that movie, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, it was set in the, I think, early 1950s or late 1940s. So it was kind of at the, the forefront of that shift to the mass market. Yeah. And of course, the, you know, typically, the, I mean, for much of U.S. history, right? the one thing that we like to tell ourselves that separated us from our European brothers and sisters was this idea that we were a classless, in America, we're a classless society, right? That was the myth that Americans told each other for a couple of hundred years. And we know pretty well by now that that's a lot of BS. But still, there is this idea that, that Americans somehow have this virtue over you know, European society, in fact, maybe society all over the world for not having these rigidly defined status classes. But we have been slipping on the, the ranking of social mobility over the years, I believe. 
without question. And I think a big part of that, honestly, goes back to World War II and, and just the way that American society, commercial society, the workforce was essentially realigned along the lines of the military after World War II. You know, it wasn't until after World War II that most Americans became salary workers. Prior to that, you know, they worked for themselves, maybe they worked on farms, worked for family businesses, whatever. Sometime in the early 1950s, late 1940s, that more Americans now are drawing salaries from companies than are, you know, doing so from other occupations. And Vance Packard in a book called The Status Seekers, which came out in the late 1950s, really put his finger on that, the way that our workforce was realigned to match the military, you know, with about 10% officer corps, about a 0.01 elite ownership corps, and, uh, you know, about 90, 92% enlisted. And then how difficult it is to jump between those divisions within the military is, is, is matched within our, our workplace. And it, it's still like that to a large degree. I interviewed a, a professor from Ohio State a few years ago. I can't remember his name. I think it's Stebbin. And he talked about another influence that the military had on the 1950s boom is that America lost far fewer men of working age in the war than the European countries did. So they had this built-in advantage of manufacturing over other countries that gave them a huge jump start in the post-war era. No doubt. Look, the World War II was won from, by the Allies on American productivity and Russian manpower. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, the Russians, what, would they lose 15 million soldiers, 20 million more now, hundreds of millions of people. We produced all those weapons of war, and most of the dead were Russians and Germans, you know, on the Eastern Front. Anyway, you've interviewed me before. You know that I'm kind of a World War II geek, and I see World War II's tentacles <laughs> all over the place in society and feel that that's an unappreciated part of that story to this day. And I do include some of that in this book. How do you think it played into the vignette you have in Italy with Paolo Scuderi? Well, you know, Paolo Scuderi is this guy whose nickname is the King of Comfort. And he's the head of this big global company called Adler Pelzer Group that not too many people over here have heard of. But that company designs and manufactures interiors for vehicles, in particular for luxury vehicles. If you've got any kind of um, Italian vehicle at this point, Ferrari, and Lamborghini, Maserati, his company has designed that interior almost certainly. Now they've branched out, and so now that Paolo Scudieri's company, your Italian's better than mine, by the way. <laughs> I won't do my Alex Trebek version of that, but you know they design interiors now for Ford and BMW and, and Bentley and Audi, all these cars. Anyway, a big part of his motivation in getting that company together was what he himself termed a mission of social justice. And as a guy who'd grown up in Southern Italy, he faced a lot of the prejudices that the, the sort of elite and more moneyed Northern Italians you know, hold against Southerners in Italy. I mean, in some ways, there's some really interesting parallels between, you know, the stereotypes and the conflicts between the North and South in the United States and in Italy. And Scudieri's motivation really was to uplift not just himself, but his region and to kind of prove that they were worthy of this elite standing. I wanted to highlight his story and, and I'll give you a quick little bit more about his story. I mean, he was basically shut out of the auto industry for a number of years, but he started designing and manufacturing car parts at this little furniture plant his father owned down in Italy and eventually won the respect of Enzo Ferrari himself, uh, who hired him for his 
first major job in the in the auto world and then you know the rest is history now he's one of the most wealthiest and famous guys in the in the luxury car manufacturing industry if you were a builder of luxury cars you would know his name i really wanted to highlight his story because well one i kind of wanted to go to italy and have an excuse to spend some money and write off some of my advance on my taxes and go uh visit his plan over there but really his story as he's framed it of one of status as a means of achieving social justice was really interesting to me and just because that topic is so volatile and so heated and so political in this country i wanted to go somewhere and find an example that was at a bit of a remove from our own country here right so that it didn't necessarily in presenting the story i, I might not open myself to charges of of my, you know, whatever bleeding heart liberalism or having a political agenda to push. And more just kind of wanted to show how status unfolded in other places and in unlikely places and places that we don't think about all the time and for reasons that we don't think about. We often think of status as something you're born to, right? The silver spoon kid and the country club set and this and that. And yes, of course, some of that is still true to some degree, but almost across the board, what I found is that when status changes and when the rules of status change, or when new, the labels of status and luxury and procedure attached them, they almost always come from people or organizations that started at the bottom, right? It's the Drake started at the bottom. Now we're here. It's not necessarily a silver spoon set that creates status. It tends to burble up from the bottom of society and for reasons of, of people wanting to achieve social equality, social justice, things of that nature. It's also why I went to British Columbia to interview Roy Vickers, who's a First Nations artist who is carving a totem pole in part to help regain some status of his First Nations village on the BC coast there. I thought it was interesting because Scudieri means a squire in the uh, sense of knights and their squires, and that the uh, Formula One team for Ferrari is named Scuderia Ferrari which means the stables of Ferrari. So it was pretty appropriate that he went to Ferrari, given his name. It's really funny that you meant, do you speak Italian or did you happen to just do some research on that? I knew what Scuderia meant, wanted to know exactly what Scudieri meant. That confused me, actually. When I first saw that with Ferrari and that term, I thought, wait, did they name their team after him? How did this happen? <laughs> and I, Because they're so close and because I don't speak that language, I thought, I was baffled by that, Stephen. So you did the fact checking that that I did as well. You know, it's like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Well, had you ever heard of, of that name? Of no, I'd, name? I'd, I'd never heard his name. It's a fun story, right? That he tells about meeting Enzo Ferrari for the first time. And you pulled back the curtain on the journalistic process and saying, you know, there might be a little self mythologizing going on here as well. Right. He tells a story, Scudieri does, of the way that he got in the car business. He was kind of sending out like a salesman just doing cold calls. And he sent Enzo Ferrari a birthday card and said, hey, I'm in the auto business down here in southern Italy. You ought to look me up sometime or, you know, something. Never expecting to hear back from the, the great man. And then one day he gets a letter in the post from Mr. Enzo Ferrari himself, legendary, if, if not maybe after Henry Ford and Benz or company, anyway, in, in the top five, probably, of all-time auto icons, saying, yeah, sure, thanks for the birthday card. I'd like to invite you to a meeting at my office at, you know, whatever, 9 a.m. on such and such date. Scudier received that note because the Italian Postal Service was late. It had been sent something like 30 days earlier, but he received it 
evening or the afternoon of before the appointment in you know up in northern Italy which was 600 miles away and there was this big hassle and he gets up there through this kind of funny story and goes in and meets the guy and and signs a deal it's a pretty great story it's part of the corporate mythology of the Adler Pelzer group because it's so great and because it's so neat and pap and fun and hooray for the scrappy little guy taking on the corporate world and winning I did a lot of digging into that to find out how true it was and you know, like a lot of these stories that people tell about themselves, there's really no way to know, you know, it's like, well, where's the letter? Where's the postmark on the letter? And what the, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, ah, it was, it was you know, 45 years ago. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't have it anymore. That kind of thing. But I did, as you said, you know, just own up to the fact that, I mean, God, in this day and age, to me, it's a triumph of public relations and communications 20, 30 years ago, but, but it's gotten just ridiculous at this point where it's very difficult to know what the information to trust and particularly when it's coming to you from corporations or governments or large entities. And sometimes you just can't find the total truth. I thought it was amusing. A few years ago, there was that movie Ford versus Ferrari. And yeah, uh, love it. Seen and, it three times. And it was amazing that the Ford Motor Company as viewed as the underdog against the family firm Ferrari. <laughs> I felt that movie, look, I like that movie, but I felt like it should have been um, called Shelby versus Ford. Yeah. Really, that's that's what the movie was. But there's one detail in that movie, if there's anyone listening that did enjoy the movie or you. When they go early on, they send a couple of envoys over to meet with Ferrari in his factory over in Italy. You know, they show an exterior shot of that building as they're walking in. And it looked really, really similar to the factory where I met, to the Adler Pelzer factory where I met with, you know, Paolo Scudieri and he toured me around and we spent the afternoon. I, I was probably in his presence about three hours, but he handed me out to some deputies here and there. I was there all day. And it was really cool to me when I saw Ford versus Ferrari because the buildings looked almost the same. And as it turns out, Gutierre had purchased his factory from Ferrari once he got enough <laughs> money and had enough orders to start building things. Uh, Ferrari says, well, I'll just sell you one of my old factories. That's where you can do your work. So that was really cool for me. But you're right. You make a really good point. Yeah, that Ford is. Although, I mean, I will say this on the racetrack, they were the underdogs right. at that time. Right. So, but yeah, otherwise kind of a joke. Well, though, I'm sure there were a lot of uh, liberties taken in that film. <laughs> The book is about the revolution. Things are changing. There is a turn going on. And is it the fragmentation of popular culture? There's so many more niches that we have in which to seek status than there were before. Or is it just now these niches are more visible and we're aware of them now? I think it's taking place on a lot of fronts. And I think that fragmentation of society is certainly one of those fronts. But there are a lot of others as well. I I will say this. I do believe and I try to make the point in the book, that our collective views of status are undergoing their biggest convulsion right now since the Industrial Revolution, right? And that's when we had, you know, thinkers like Thorstein Veblen, who wrote the book, The Theory of the Leisure Class in 1899. And then after that, you know, guys like John Kenneth Galbraith and Vance Packard were framing status in the consumer age as something malign or morally deficient, right? But today with all these sorts of sophisticated methods of research, scientists and scholars and others are overturning these beliefs. One of the big takeaways from the status revolution is that status seeking is no longer a sin, it's biology. 
And one of the examples I like to use is a guy named Dr. Stephen Quartz at Caltech in Pasadena, who, along with others, not just him, have been using fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, to literally watch our brain, see what's happening inside of the brain, see the activity in the brain's pleasure centers heightening at the exact moment that a person consumes, say, a high-priced wine or some other product that they associate with elitism and, and prestige. And, you know, a lot of that pleasure center activity is created by this rush of dopamine, which is the brain's primary reward chemical. There's a study that I love that happened at Caltech. It wasn't Quartz's. It was headed by a woman named Hilke Plasman. She's now over in France, I think, or Switzerland at a university. At any rate, she had this really fun study that had a good fake out like a lot of these, you know, psych and sociology studies do, where she put people, you know, um, in using functional magnetic resonance imaging, looking at their brain waves, and said, look, we're doing this study, and we want to test the digestive properties of certain wines, or, you know, kind of gave them a, a faint. And so we're going to give you three bottles of wine, or three glasses from bottles. And this first one here we're giving you is a $10 bottle of wine or $8 bottle of wine. We picked it up from Trader Joe's, some little Cabernet from Southern California. And the people would sip it and they'd watch their brainwaves. Well, then later on, they'd say, and, you know, the, the brain would do what it did, you know, normal. And later they'd say, okay, now we've got this $150 estate bottled vintage from, you know, this tiny valley in France or something. Taste this one and see, let me see what this does. And they taste it and they're, dopamine levels would just go bananas, right? Their brains would just light up. What the people didn't know was that the $150 bottle of wine was the exact same bottle of wine as the $10 bottle. There was no difference in the wine, but they were enjoying it a lot more physically or at least mentally. And we all love to, to joke about, you know, these wine snobs that can't tell a $10 bottle of wine from a $150 bottle of wine if it's, you know, in a paper bag or if you've got the label obscured. But what this study proved is that people really do enjoy higher priced wine. They really do like it better. They like it more than they do the cheap wine. Maybe not for the reasons that we thought, you know, oh, it tastes better, the texture or the history of the, no, but they are enjoying it more because they are getting a much greater boost of pleasure chemicals in their brain when they think they're consuming something that has luxury or status attached to it. But it's the concept, not the product itself. That's right. But there is a measurable physical change that happens, right? And that's why I say status isn't sin, it's biology. And so there is a chemical reward that you get from that. And you get that same chemical reward if you buy, some people do anyway, a $400 pair of shoes as opposed to the $40 pair of shoes, even if it's the exact same shoe. It's just got a different label and different price tag. It does really make them feel better. But you're right, it's happening in the head. It's not happening in their feet or on their tongue. I mean, a guy like Stephen Quartz, what, what this says to him right, is that status seeking is neither a product of vanity nor this artificially created social anxiety, you know, keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. It's a measurable biological function. And so rather than mock the pursuit of status and luxury, which everyone from Thorstein Veblen to Grandma Moses has done forever, Quartz and others want us to accept that status and status seeking, we want to accept that in the same way that we accept our need for oxygen and sexual gratification, right? Maybe even celebrate it in the same way. I'm kind of scrolling here for a quote. Okay, I found it. This is a quote from Stephen Quartz, which I really like, and it kind of sums up this new attitude in scientific and academic communities about 
status, status seeking and all that. This is the quote, a major barrier to understanding consumption is the idea that our status concerns are artificial or worse yet, pathological. This is a historically monumental mistake, one that has resulted in decades of misleading critiques. Once we recognize the biological reality of consumer motives, the prescription to deny them becomes as feasible and right-minded as the Victorian demand for chastity. So the idea is that don't focus on condemning status. We should focus on understanding it. We should definitely understand it, but there are biological imperatives that we have that we have to control in society and also for our own health. I mean, our bodies want us to consume sugar and fat because in the olden days, those were in short supply. But now we have to consciously limit our intake of that so we can lead healthy lives. Well, you're right about that. And I don't think courts or others are for myself. I'll speak for myself. I won't even speak for anybody else. I don't think that I or anybody else, I guess I am speaking for others now. But <laughs> from what I saw, nobody is necessarily saying that we should have this unchecked free for all of status consumption. I think what they're saying is let's stop shaming people for having these impulses. Maybe in the same way that we, you know, are being told, let, let's stop shaming people for over consuming sugar. My God, man, just since you bring it up, I mean, I, I there's probably some loose connection to status here about what I'm about to say, because just about everything is tied to status And when I look at it. But I've gone on this kind of kick to limit or eliminate processed sugar from my diet. And it's virtually impossible. It's really hard to do if you like even a few normal food items. So, you know, I've gone from eliminate to, you know, cut in half my consumption of processed sugar. But the point that I'm getting to here, Stephen, that you made is, let's stop shaming people for doing something that comes naturally to them. Now, that doesn't mean let's go binge and spend all of our money on <laughs> luxury goods and flaunt it and this and that. But there's more to this thing, this seeking of status and signaling status than simple vanity or a moral weakness derived from an inability to withstand a marketing onslaught that teaches you to consume. And it's remarkable how broadly we can behave and achieve status in different communities because you see people now that Tesla has fallen out of favor, but still the drive toward electric vehicles, while on the other end, down in the South, we have guys that want to drive $80,000 pickups and roll coal. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Electric vehicles are a, a bit of a signal of elitism right now. It, that kind of blows me away. I don't understand... I mean, I get that in maybe states like Wyoming or something that are dependent on coal or that produce gas or places that refine it, that they have a commercial interest in supporting gas-powered vehicles. That's fine. But man, electric vehicles are better in just about every way except right now the distance, right? The, the, the power in them is insane, right? They're kind of more fun to drive. They're faster. They handle better. I mean, they're quieter. They're just better. And, you know, if you even buy into the idea a little bit that you don't even have to buy into climate change as an idea as much as pollution from emissions from internal combustion engines, for God's sake. I mean, I mean, you know, look at Los Angeles and Dallas and every metropolitan area in the country. Who wouldn't want to get rid of that? I don't understand why that's become this prestige thing. But to get to your other point, status is for everyone kind of made no sense to me at first either, but there are all these little niches. And gradually, I kind of came to understand it as the foundation of this entirely new system of status and privilege that is commuted to us now in everything from Instagram vacation posts to 
think of personal services like DoorDash and TaskRabbit. In days gone by, these were services mostly provided by minions for millionaires. And they're available to all of us now. We all have a personal assistant on call at this point. I won't say all of us, but you know, most people with economic means can have, have these services that were 30 years ago unimaginable. Well, Chuck, we're just having too much fun, and I think there's still a lot more to talk about in your book. Do you want to come back next time and talk some more? That'd be cool. I'd love to. Yeah, there is a lot more in this book, and I enjoy talking to you, so yes. All right, good deal. Until next time. Chuck Thompson is the author of The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow, published by Simon & Schuster. Tune in next time as we conclude our talk about status and also soft rock. I'm Stephen Usry. And this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.